Chapter 11 of Science in Short Chapters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Science in Short Chapters by W. Matteo Williams. A Contribution to the History of Electric Lighting. As the subject of lighting by electricity is occupying so much public attention, and the merits of various inventors and inventions are so keenly discussed, the following facts may have some historical interest in connection with it. In October 1845, I was consulted by some American gentlemen concerning the construction of a large voltaic battery for experimenting upon an invention, afterwards described and published in the specification of King's Patent Electric Light, Letters Patent Granted for Scotland November 26th, 1845, enrolled March 25, 1846, English patent sealed November 4, 1845. Mr. King was not the inventor, but he and Mr. Dorr supplied capital, and Mr. Snyder also held a share, which was afterward transferred to myself. The inventor was Mr. Starr, a young man about 25 years of age, and one of the ablest experimental investigators with whom I have ever had the privilege of near acquaintance. He had been working for some years on the subject, commencing with the ordinary arc between charcoal points. His first efforts were directed to maintaining constancy, and he showed me, in January of 1846, an arrangement by which he succeeded in effecting an automatic renewal of contact by means of an electromagnet, the armature of which received the electric flow when the arc was broken, and which thus magnetized, brought the carbons together, and then allowed them to be withdrawn to their required separation when the flow returned. This device was almost identical with that subsequently reinvented and patented by Mr. Strait, quite independently, I believe, and which, with modifications, has since been rather extensively used. Although successful so far, he was not satisfied. He reasoned out the subject and concluded that the electric spark between metals, the electric arc between the carbons, and other luminous electric phenomenon are secondary effects due to the heating and illumination of electric carriers, that the electric spark of the conductors of ordinary electrical machines is simply the transfer of incandescent particles of metal, which affect a kind of electric convection known as the disruptive discharge and that the more brilliant arc between the carbon points is simply due to the use of a substance which breaks up more readily and gives a longer, broader, and more continuous stream of incandescent convection particles. This is now readily accepted, but at that time it was only dawning upon the understanding of electricians. I am satisfied that Mr. Starr worked out the principle quite originally. He therefore concluded that, the light being due to solid particles heated by electric disturbance, it would be more advantageous as regards steadiness, economy, and simplicity, to place in the current a continuous solid barrier, which should present sufficient resistance to its passage to become bodily incandescent without disruption. This was the essence of the invention specified in King's patent as a communication from abroad, which claims the use of continuous metallic and carbon conductors intensely heated by the passage of a current of electricity for the purposes of illumination. The metal selected was platinum, which, as the specification states, though not so infusible as iridium, has but little affinity for oxygen, and offers a great resistance to the passage of the current. 
The form the thin sheets known by the name of leaf platinum is described as preferable. These to be rolled between sheets of copper in order to secure uniformity and to be carefully cut in strips of equal width and with a clean edge in order that one part may not be fused before the other parts have obtained a sufficiently high temperature to produce a brilliant light. This strip is to be suspended between forceps. I need not describe the arrangement for regulating the distance between the forceps, for directing the current, etc., as we soon learned that this part of the invention was of no practical value, on account of the narrow margin between efficient incandescence and the fusion of the platinum. The experiments with the large battery I made, consisting of a hundred Danielle cells, with two square feet of working surface of each element in each cell, and the copper plates about three quarters of an inch distant from the zinc, satisfied all concerned that neither platinum nor any available alloy of platinum and iridium could be relied upon, especially when the grand idea of subdividing the light by interposing several platinum strips in the same circuit and working with proportionally higher power was carried out. This drove Mr. Starr to rely upon the second part of the specification, viz., that of using a small stick of carbon made incandescent in a torsillian vacuum. He commenced with plumbago and, after trying many other forms of carbon, found that which lines gas retorts that have been lost in use to be the best. The carbon stick of square section, about one-tenth of an inch thick and half an inch working length, was held vertically by metallic forceps at each end in a barometer tube, the upper part of which, containing the carbon, was enlarged to a sort of oblong bulb. A thick platinum wire from the upper forceps was sealed into the top of the tube and projected beyond. A similar wire passed downwards from the lower forceps and dipped into the mercury of the tube, which was so long that when arranged as a barometer, the enlarged end containing the carbon was vacuous. Considerable difficulty was at first encountered in supporting this fragile stick. Metal supports were not available on account of their expansion, and finally, little cylinders of porcelain were used, one on each side of the carbon stick, and about three-eighths of an inch distant. By connecting the mercury cup with one terminal of the battery, and the upper platinum wire with the other, a brilliant and perfectly steady light was produced. Not so intense as the ordinary disruption arc between carbons, but equally, if not more effective, on account of the magnitude of brilliant radiating surface. Some curious phenomenon accompanied this illumination of the carbon. The mercury column fell to about half its barometric height, and presently the glass opposite the carbon stick became slightly dimmed by the deposition of a thin film of sooty deposit. At first, the depression of the mercury was attributed to the formation of mercurial vapor and is described accordingly in the specification, but further observation refuted this theory, for no return of the metal took place when the tube was cooled. The depression was permanent. The formation of vaporous carbon was suggested by one of the capitalists, but neither Mr. Starr nor myself was satisfied with this, nor with any other surmise we were able to make during Mr. Starr's lifetime nor up to the period of final abandonment of the enterprise. When this occurred, the remaining apparatus was assigned to me and I retained possession of the finally arranged tube in carbon for many years and have shown it in action, worked by a small groves battery in the town hall of Birmingham and many times to my pupils at the Birmingham and Midland Institute. These exhibitions suggested an explanation of the mysterious gaseous matter, which I believe to be the correct one, 
and also of the carbon deposit. It is this, that the carbon contains occluded oxygen, that when the carbon is heated, some of this oxygen combines with the carbon, forming carbonic oxide and carbonic acid, and a little smoke. I proved the presence of carbonic acid by the usual tests, but did not quantitatively determine its proportions of the total atmosphere. If I were fitting up another tube on this principle, I should wash it with a strong solution of caustic potash before filling it with mercury, and allow some of the potash solution to float on the mercury surface by filling the tube while the glass remained moistened with the solution. My object would be to get rid of the carbonic acid as soon as formed, as the observations I have made lead me to believe that when the carbon stick is incandescent in an atmosphere of carbonic acid or carbonic oxide, a certain degree of dissociation and recombination is continually occurring, which weakens and would ultimately break up the carbon stick and increases the sooty deposit. The large battery was arranged for intensity, but even then it was found that the quantity, I use the old-fashioned terms, of electricity was excessive, and that it worked more advantageously when the cells were but partially filled with acid and sulfate. A larger stick of carbon might have been used with the whole surface in full action. After working the battery in various ways and duly considering the merits of the other forms of batteries then in use, Mr. Starr was driven to the conclusion that for the purposes of practical illumination, the voltaic battery is a hopeless source of power and that magneto-electric machinery driven by steam power must be used. I fully concurred with him in this conclusion, and so did Mr. King, Mr. Dorr, and all concerned. Mr. Starr then set to work to devise a suitable diamo-electric machine, and, following his usual course of starting from first principles, concluded that all armatures hitherto constructed were defected in one fundamental element of their arrangement. The thick copper wire surrounding the soft iron core necessarily follows a spiral course, like that of a coarse screw thread, but the electric current, or lines of force which it is designed to pick up and carry, circulate at right angles to the axis of the core and extend to some distance beyond its surface. The problem thus presented is to wind around the soft iron a conductor that shall be broad enough to grasp a large proportion of this outspread force and yet shall follow its course as nearly as possible by standing out at right angles to the axis of the armature. This he endeavored to effect by using a core of square section and winding round it a broad ribbon of sheet copper, insulated on both sides by cementing on its surface a layer of silk ribbon. This armature was laid with one side against one edge of the core and carried on thus to the angle then turned over so that its opposite side should be presented to the next side of the core, this side to be followed in like manner. The ribbon similarly turned again at the next corner, and so on, till the core became fully enclosed or armed with a continuous ribbon, which thus encircled the core with its edges outwards and nearly at right angles to the axis, in spite of its width, which might be increased to any extent found by the experiment to be desirable. At this stage, my direct cooperation and confidential communication with Mr. Starr ceased, as I remained in London while he went to Birmingham in order to get his machinery constructed and to apply it at the works of Messrs. Elkington, who had then recently introduced the principle of dynamo-electric motive power for electroplating, etc., and were, I believe, using Woolrich's apparatus 
the patent for which was dated August 1, 1842, and enrolled February 1, 1843. I am unable to state the results of his efforts in Birmingham. I only heard the murmurs of capitalists who loudly complained of expenditure without results. They had dreamed the same dream that Mr. Edison has recently redreamed and has told the world so loudly. They supposed that the mechanically excited current might be carried along great lengths of wire and the carbons interposed wherever required and that the same electricity would flow on and do the duty of illumination over and over again as a river may fall over a succession of weirs and turn water wheels at each. Mr. Starr knew better. His skepticism was misinterpreted. He was taunted with failure and non-fulfillment of the anticipations he had raised, and with the fruitless expenditure of large sums of other people's money. He was a high-minder, honorable, and very sensitive man, suffering already from overworked brain before he went to Birmingham. There he worked again still harder, with further vexation and disappointment, until one morning he was found dead in his bed. Having, during my short acquaintance with him, enjoyed his full confidence in reference to all his investigations, I have no hesitation in affirming that his early death cut short the career of one who otherwise would have largely contributed to the progress of experimental science and have done honor to his country. His martyrdom, for such it was, taught me a useful lesson I then much needed, viz., to abstain from entering upon a costly series of physical investigations without being well assured of the means of completing them, and, above all, of being able to afford to fail. There are many others who sorely need to be impressed with the same lesson, especially at this moment and in connection with this subject. The warning is the most applicable to those who are now misled by a plausible but false analogy. They look at the progress made in other things, the mighty achievements of modern science, and therefore infer that the electric light, even though unsuccessful hitherto, may be improved up to practical success, as other things have been. A great fallacy is hidden here. As a matter of fact, the progress made in electric lighting since Mr. Starr's death in 1846 has been very small indeed. As regards the lamp itself, no progress whatever has been made. I am satisfied that Starr's continuous carbon stick, properly managed in a true vacuum or an atmosphere free from oxygen, carbonic oxide, carbonic acid, or other oxygen compound, is the best that has yet been placed before the public for all purposes where exceptionally intense illumination, as in lighthouses, is not demanded. Comparing electric with gas lighting, the hopeful believers in progressive improvement appear to forget that gas making and gas lighting are as susceptible of further improvement as electric lighting, and that, as a matter of fact, its practical progress during the last 40 years is incomparably greater than that of the electric light. I refer more particularly to the practical and crucial question of economy. The byproducts, the ammonical salts, the liquid hydrocarbons, and their derivatives have been developed into so many useful forms by the achievement of modern chemistry that these, with the coke, are of sufficient value to cover the whole cost of manufacture and leave the gas itself as a volatile residuum that costs nothing. It would actually and practically cost nothing and might be profitably delivered to the burners of gas consumers, a far better quality than now supplied in London, at one shilling per thousand cubic feet if gas-making were conducted on sound commercial principles, that is, if it were not a corporate monopoly and were subject to the wholesome stimulating influence of free competition and private enterprise. 
As it is, our gas and the price we pay for it are absurdities, and all calculations respecting the comparative costs of new methods of illumination should be based not on what we do pay per candle power of gaslight, but what we ought to pay and should pay if the gas companies were subjected to desirable competition or visited with the national confiscation I think they deserve. Having had considerable practical experience in the commercial distillation of coal for the sake of its liquid and solid hydrocarbons, I speak thus plainly and with full confidence. There is yet another consideration, and one of vital importance, to be taken into account, viz. that whether we use the electric light derived from a dynamo electric source or coal gas, our primary source of illuminating power is coal, or rather the chemical energy derivable from the combination of its hydrogen and carbon with oxygen. Now this chemical energy is a limited quantity, and the progress of science can no more increase this quantity than it can make a ton of coal weigh 2100 weights by increasing the quantity of its gravitating energy. The demonstrable limits of scientific possibilities is the economic application of this limited store of energy by converting it into the demanded form of force without waste. The more indirect and roundabout the method of application, the greater must be the loss of power in the course of its transfer and conversion. In heating the boiler that sets the dynamo electric machine to work, about one half of the energy of the coal is wasted, even with the best constructed furnaces. This merely as regards the quantity of water evaporated. In converting the heat force into mechanical power, raising the piston, etc., of the steam engine, this working half is again seriously reduced. In further converting this residue of mechanical power into electrical energy, another and considerable loss is suffered in originating and sustaining the motion of the dynamo electric machine, the dissipation of the electric energy that the armature cannot pick up, and in overcoming the electrical resistances to its transfer. I am unable to state the amount of this loss in trustworthy figures, but should be very much surprised to learn that, with the best arrangements now known, more than one-tenth of the original energy of the coal is made practically available. This small illuminating residuum may, and doubtlessly will, be increased by the progress of practical improvement, but from the necessary nature of the problem, the power available for illumination at the end of the series must always be but a small portion of that employed at the beginning. In burning the gas derived from coal, we obtain its illuminating power directly, and if we burn it properly, we obtain nearly all. The coke residuum is also directly used as a source of heat. The chief waste of the original energy in the gasworks is represented by the portion of the coke that is burned under the retorts, and in obtaining that relatively small amount of steam power demanded in the works. These are far more than paid for by the value of the liquid hydrocarbons and ammonium salts when they are properly utilized. In concluding my narrative, I may add that after Mr. Starr's death, Pat and Ease offered to engage me on certain terms to carry on his work. I declined this simply because I had seen enough to convince me of the impossibility of any success at all corresponding to their anticipations. During the intervening 30 years, I have abstained from further meddling with the electric light because all that I had seen then and have heard of since has convinced me that although as a scientific achievement the electric light is a splendid success, its practical application to all purposes where cost is a matter of serious consideration is hopeless and must of necessity continue to be so. Whoever can afford to pay some shillings per hour for a single splendid light of solar completeness can have it without difficulty, 
but not so where the cost in pence per hour per burner has to be counted. I should add that before the publication of King's specification, Mr., now Sir William, Grove proposed the use of a helix or coil of platinum made incandescent by electricity as a light to be used for certain purposes. This was shown at the Royal Society on or about December 1st, 1845. Since the publication of the above in 1879, I have learned from a paper in the Quarterly Journal of Science by Professor Arrington that in 1841 an English patent was granted to the Demoylands for electric lighting by incandescence. End of a contribution to the history of electric lighting.